Uh, please could you open your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking through that in just a short moment. Again, if you think I'm going too fast, or if you think that you can't hear me or understand me, we're a small group, okay? So you can raise your hand and I'll happily repeat myself. Okay? I'll pray. Heavenly Father, the unfolding of your word brings light and it gives understanding to the simple. We pray, Father, that through your word you will be teaching us today that we may know you more, that we may love you more, and that we may serve you in the hope of the gospel. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, yesterday, I spent some time outlining the significance of the creator-creature distinction in Genesis 1. And so before we look at the narrative of the fall, I want to spend a few more moments considering the implications of this distinction for our worldview. Now, philosophy, or worldview, has typically been divided into three interrelated fields, namely ontology, epistemology, and ethics. Ontology is the study of being, that is, what things are, also known as metaphysics. Epistemology is the study of knowledge, that is, what we know and how we know it. And ethics is the study of right and wrong. Now, actually, we have already encountered each of these things in passing when we looked at Genesis 1. But I want to clarify them now because they are all radically affected by sin in the fall. Now, firstly, the Bible teaches a twofold ontology, two types of being. That is, there is the creator God and there is the creature. God is absolute, autonomous, and self-contained. His being is originary. It is eternal. It is independent. His creation, on the other hand, is not originary, but is derivative and dependent upon God's being. Now, this distinction in ontology has consequences for our epistemology. That is, how do we think about and interpret things? Because the created universe, as derivative of God, only exists because God has willed it. Therefore, the meaning of the universe and the meaning of ourselves is predetermined by his will. God as independent and self-defined, gives meaning to the universe and gives meaning to each one of us. That means that if we are to interpret anything in the world correctly, we must do so according to God's revealed purpose. God is the ultimate reference point for all of our meaning and all of our interpretation. God's the ultimate reference point. Finally, and closely related to the other two, biblical ethics is determined by the nature of God. Goodness is not an abstract standard that is external to God, standing over him, and to which he must conform. Instead, goodness is defined by God himself. 
Hence, Jesus' statement, no one is good except God alone. If we think about goodness in the universe, it conforms to what God has declared. It conforms to his character. So, in summary, the Bible provides us with a comprehensive worldview in which the triune God is ultimate and we are derivative. We are not God. We are made by God. And the implication for thinking and for ethics is that we must regard God as the ultimate reference point. You're happy with that so far? Okay. Now, let's go to Genesis 2. In this chapter, God fashioned man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. He placed the man into an abundant garden paradise which he was to work and keep. Then, in verses 16 and 17, God spoke a prohibition to Adam. Now, we already know from Genesis 1 that God's word is intimately related to God himself. It is powerful, it is effective, it is truthful, it determines what is good. Therefore, when God speaks his prohibition to Adam, his word carries all of the same attributes that it did in Genesis 1. It is a good word. So let us read that prohibition. In verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gave Adam one restriction amidst all of the abundance and blessing. He was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now just stop briefly and think about Adam's position. Adam was not oppressed by a burdensome and dictatorial tyrant. He was not created as a slavish automaton, like a robot. On the contrary, Adam was blessed abundantly and given perfect freedom. However, Adam could only exercise his freedom as a creature. His freedom is a creaturely freedom. He was not free, and we can never be free, to step outside of our creatureliness and become autonomous and independent of God. We can't do this because our existence as creatures is completely dependent upon God. And God's prohibition to Adam made it clear that Adam's rule over creation and his experience of blessing could only be exercised in submission to his creator who had breathed life into him only ten verses before. It was a recognition of his creaturely nature. And finally, the prohibition came with a penal consequence, a penalty. If Adam did not obey and chose to eat the fruit, then on that day he would surely die. God told Adam with complete clarity that to to disobey his word and to rebel against him would have an immediate and just consequence, that is, death. If Adam rebelled against the source of his life, then he would be cut off from life. In summary, Adam's world, Adam's wor- uh, God's word rather, provided everything that was necessary for Adam to interpret reality and to act accordingly. 
here's Adam's worldview. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God gave meaning and legislated. Adam can therefore think that he should obey and not eat, and he will live, or he can disobey and eat, and Adam will die. God has given meaning to that tree, and Adam has a response. Okay? Now, everyone look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now we are introduced to a new character, the serpent. He is described as crafty. Now in Hebrew that word does not necessarily mean uh, have a negative connotation. It can just mean intelligence. But we are also told that he is a creature, a beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This means that the serpent is not another God-like being, but he is dependent upon God as his creature. And this means that the serpent is under the control and the authority of God. Now, the serpent does a surprising thing. He speaks. Now, this is not surprising simply because we are not used to speaking animals, apart from parrots but because God has been the primary speaker so far, and now there is an alternative speaker in the Garden of Eden. So let's examine his words. Did God actually say? Now, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is rather subtle. How the serpent chooses to address God. Look back at chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Here, as everywhere else in chapter 2, God is the Lord God. Now those capital letters in your Bible, L-O-R-D, all in capitals, denote the presence in the Hebrew of the name Yahweh. Now that is the covenant name that God disclosed to Moses when he revealed himself at the burning bush. He revealed this name as an expression of his covenant relationship to the people of Israel. It is a name that implies relationship. So in Genesis 2, the God who made Adam, who breathed life into him, and who spoke to him is not some distant God thing who is unconcerned with the affairs of his creatures but he is intimately connected with his creation as the covenant Lord. Therefore, it is significant that for the first time, the serpent chooses to drop this covenant title and say, did God actually say? Now, it's subtle, but it helps to foster the idea that God is somehow distant from his creation. And perhaps that's a way that sin works in our lives. We think we are tempted to sin because God is somehow far away. He may not know what we do. If he does know, maybe he doesn't care. Now, God is very present with his creation. Second, notice that the serpent is questioning God's words, or at least the woman's understanding of them. Did God 
actually say. We know from Genesis 1 that God's words are intimately connected with God himself. His word is the exclusive agent of his purpose, and it overflows with his goodness. God cannot be separated from his word. Therefore, a questioning of God's word is implicitly a questioning of God himself. Is that a pattern in our lives? Did God actually say that I can't have a non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend? Did God actually say that serving him must be more important than my career or my grades? Thirdly, the serpent distorts the commandment of God, and he does so in such a way that impugns the gracious character of God. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, God said no such thing. Rather, God gave Adam every green plant and every tree. He only reserved one tree in order that Adam might self-consciously recognize his creatureliness and submit to the creator God. In summary, in his first statement in verse 1, the serpent, who is a creature of God, has questioned God's covenant presence, has questioned God's word, and has questioned God's goodness. It is very insidious. Now, let us think how the woman responds in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, actually, if we carefully observe, we can see that the woman's response is a mixture of truth and error. She correctly denies the assertion that they were not permitted to eat of any tree in the garden. But she does fall prey to distorting God's words and impugning God's character. If you read the statement again, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Well, notice the difference. She has made God's commandment more restrictive. God never said you shall not touch it. Notice also that she does not address God as the Lord God, but has bought into the serpent's subtle tactic that distances the Lord from his creatures. God is now just God. However, she does correctly assert that eating the fruit has the penal consequence of death, demonstrating that she does understand the consequence of disobedience. But the serpent directly denies this. He denies the truthfulness of God's word and makes a direct assault upon his character. You will not surely die. Verse 3. Now we should pause for a second to contemplate that the first direct lie in all of Scripture is the denial of God's righteous judgment. That's the first direct lie. God will not judge, you will not die. 
That is a wicked lie that continues to propagate today and unfortunately is given credence in many churches. We must faithfully present the idea that God will judge and God will condemn. We cannot lie like the serpent. Now, this lie immediately confirms that the serpent has wicked purpose and intent. He intends to lead the man and woman away from trusting in God and to trust in lies instead. He invites the woman to believe that God will not be faithful to his word and that God cannot be trusted. And by inviting the woman not to trust in God's interpretation of the facts, he encourages her to adopt an alternative interpretation. An interpretation in which God's word is not the ultimate reference point, but in which she has become the autonomous arbiter of truth. It is actually a rationalistic framework. So, here is the creational worldview. God creates, gives meaning, and legislates concerning the tree. And there is the interpretation for man. Very clear. Now, temptation to sin has a profoundly epistemological dimension. It has a dimension for us knowing. It affects the way we reason and the way that we think about our reason. What we actually do is we dethrone God in our minds and we enthrone ourselves. So imagine this example. Here is Adam and Eve reasoning with respect to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How do they interpret meaning in creation? Well, with reference to the triune God. Because it is God who has created both the tree and Adam and Eve, and he has given them both meaning. So for Adam and Eve to correctly interpret the tree, they don't have to create or invent meaning. They have to follow God's meaning. But here is what happens in the fall. So they interpret it, don't eat good, do eat evil. Here's what happens in the fall. God is removed. The man and the woman rise up to God's place, and they create meaning for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so what do they think? Well, to don't, don't eat is bad, and eating is actually good. That is... If we adopt an epistemology, a thinking and reasoning, in which our own human reasoning is ultimate, we've kicked God out, then it's necessarily going to lead to human ultimacy in ethics. We will determine for ourselves, whether individually or societally, what we think is right and what we think is wrong. We become the determiners of goodness, which in Genesis chapter 1 is only God's prerogative. Now, consider carefully what the serpent says next. Okay? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is, if the woman disobeys God and eats the fruit, then her eyes will be opened and she will be like God. In other words, the the woman is tempted to deny her status as a creature to arrogantly presume to be like the creator. She is tempted to enthrone herself in God's position. 
But the way that she will be like God, according to the serpent, is in knowing good and evil. Now, what does that mean? Well, that can't mean that the woman will come to an awareness of evil. It's not an awareness of evil. Because she already knows this implicitly from God's command. It's God and God alone through his word who declares what is good. Therefore, the meaning knowing good and evil is to arrogantly assume the position of the creator who determines good and evil. In effect, the disobedience is saying, God, what you declare to be good, I am free to regard as evil. What you declare to be evil, I am free to regard as good. Is that a pattern in our lives? We determine what is good? It's very rebellious. In choosing to eat the fruit, the woman is saying that God is not the reference point for ethics. She is. And hence, when we read verse 6, it is quite natural. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She saw that the tree was good, and that it was pleasing to the eyes but ultimately that it was to be desired to make one wise. She desired a wisdom that was outside of her position as a creature. She desired a wisdom that is only for God alone. So she rebelled against God's command. Now, as an aside, we can notice that the pattern of the rebellion completely reverses the order that's established in creation. God, man and woman, creature. That is now completely turned upside down. The creature speaks to the woman, draws her away. Woman kind of governing her husband, husband rejecting God. It's completely topsy-turvy. Now, in essence, the fall, like all sin, is an act of direct rebellion against God. It is desiring and assuming the role of creator instead of the creature and assuming autonomy. It is ceasing to make God the ultimate reference point in our thinking and in our ethics and instead placing ourselves in the position of God. Sin is not rule-breaking. It is a desire to de-God God, to dethrone him, and to enthrone ourselves in every sphere of our lives. It is a hostile rebellion against God that pervades every part of our being, how we think of ourselves, how we think of the world, and how we think of ethics. Sin, at its core, is comprehensive rebellion. And frankly, it is stupid. God is still God, regardless of what we think of ourselves or what we think of him. God's position was not affected by the fall, but ours was. Now, let us consider the immediate reaction that they have. So let us go to verse 7.
a lot of information, right? You okay? Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, what happened when they both disobeyed God? The eyes of both of them were opened, but all they saw was their own nakedness. They were deceived. The things that seem to promise so much pleasure and so much promise are simply illusory. And it makes them look like fools. They recognize their nakedness. That means they recognize their shame and guilt. Now, when we resume the narrative, the man and the woman hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God is, again, identified by his covenant name. He is indeed present in his creation. However, now that man and woman have fallen into sin, both of them hide from the presence of God. They are in hiding. And yet there is no place that they can hide from God's presence. Even as they hide among the trees of the garden, those trees themselves are revelational of the eternal power and the divine nature of God. The trees are revealing God. They bear witness to God's love and generosity towards them, the love that they have now spurned in rebellion. The trees testify about God, and now they testify about his wrath. And yet, even if they could flee the trees, they cannot flee from the presence of God that has been stamped indelibly within themselves as God's image bearers. Their conscience bears witness against them. Romans 1 is saying that when you and I sin, we cannot flee from the presence of God. God is present with his creation. The creation reveals the glory of God, and we ourselves are revelational of God through our conscience. And that conscience is sufficient to condemn us on the final day. Every perspective, there is an authoritative revelation of God, his law, his world, and their conscience. But everything now testifies to guilt. It's a tragedy. You walk around, or non-Christians walk around the world, which testifies to their impending condemnation. God is plainly seen. But he's plainly seen in wrath. Now, the only resolution can come with the Lord God, who calls out to the man and reestablishes the order of creation. But as the guilt of the man is dragged out into the open, notice how Adam responds. The man said in verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The man, rather than acknowledging his guilt, passes it on to his wife. He's blaming. I'm not guilty, God. She is. But actually, if you look closely, look again. Verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me. God, actually, you're to blame. You made this woman. This woman tempted me to sin. Your fault. And the woman also plays the blame game. And she passes the buck down to the creature. The serpent deceived me. And I ate, verse 13. We passed the buck. 
We say, don't identify sin with me, someone else, or you, God, but it's not me. But yet none of them can deny the charge. Both have to concede that they ate the fruit and that they disobeyed God. In God's courtroom, a just verdict is always delivered, and in this case, it came out of the mouth of both of them. I ate. Won't be any different on the judgment day. And just as God established the verdict justly, he's now going to proclaim the just punishment. The serpent's lie is exposed for the wicked lie that it was. God is faithfully keeping to his word, and he now proclaims their death sentence. On the day in which they ate the fruits, words of blessing changed to words of curse, and mankind, according to God's word, was dead. God's word can be trusted. It unfailingly comes Yet even here, in the midst of these terrible words, words that herald the dawn of murder, of famine, of pestilence, of war, of rape, in these words, God's undeserved grace still pervades unexpectedly. Look carefully at verse 14 and 15 as God curses the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises that there will be a continuing hostility between the serpent and mankind. But this hostility is going to reach a climax when the head of the serpent is crushed by the man, the offspring of the woman. There will be a serpent crusher. But before we consider this, we must first note that the woman shall have offspring. Isn't that incredible? God says that this spiritually dead woman is actually going to bring forth life. Isn't that unexpected? No hint of that before the fall. This is why the woman is called Eve in verse 20, because she is the mother of all of the living. That is, in the first condemnation, as God is condemning man to the grave, we already have the tantalizing anticipation that God is going to raise man and life out from the grave. God's grace is present immediately. This is thoroughly undeserved. And it gives us a clue to the nature of the serpent's defeat that the offspring of the woman shall utterly destroy the serpent, pulverize his head into the ground, and yet in so doing, the man shall be wounded, although not fatally. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first whisper of the gospel of Christ. And it is the first sentence that God says in curse after the fall. Now that tells us a lot about the character of God. Next, let's consider the woman. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, we've already noticed the amazing revelation that the dead woman shall bring forth life, but it will be in pain. But furthermore, the broken relationship between God and man means that there is a broken relationship between man and woman. The blessing of marriage union has now turned to curse. The woman will try to dominate her husband, and he shall respond violently. Sin has affected the marital and societal relationship. And this is going to be seen in the next chapter when there's the first murder. And thirdly, and finally, to the man, God says, (coughs) Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Just as blessing turned to curse in the man-woman relationship, so also the entire created realm, all of creation, is affected by the sin of man and is under curse. It shall bring forth thorns. Yet at the very end comes the inevitable condemnation. Mankind will return to the ground which is cursed. Adam, his wife, and all of their children, including us, now face the certainty of the grave. Each one of us is going to die as a consequence of this chapter. The words, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, in Genesis 1, have now turned to the Genesis 5 repeat, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. Jingwei, Hannah, Kat, Dinesh, Bernadette, Jerry, myself, my wife, Ting Ying, we're all going to die. This world is under curse. And finally, so that man cannot take from the tree of life... Both were banished from the garden and banished from the presence of God's blessing. A cherubim wielding a flaming sword is placed in the east of the garden to guard the entrance and to guard the way back to God's garden. Now, this word for guard is the same word for keep in chapter 2. As Adam was supposed to guard and keep the garden, now that function has been given to a creature who is to guard and keep the garden from Adam. Adam was supposed to keep wickedness out of the garden. He failed. Now Adam has become wicked. He must be guarded from the garden. Terrible. Yet we know the Bible does not stop at Genesis 3. But that the rest of the Bible starts from here. From this point on, God is working out his redemptive purposes. Just as God was faithful to his word to condemn, he is faithful in his promise to restore. The woman did give birth to an offspring, one who has crushed the head of the serpent at his own cost. As Jesus went to the cross, he endured the punishment of Genesis 3. 
At the cross, he was naked and took on our nakedness before God. As he wears the thorns upon his head, he is wearing the curse of Adam. He wears the curse that is due to us. And as he suffered and died, he bore our condemnation because he did not deserve to die. And at his last breath, according to Mark, the curtain of the temple that was woven with the pattern of the imposing cherubim who guarded the way back into God's presence, that curtain was finally broken and the way back into God's presence, the way back into Eden, was finally restored in the death of Christ. We will study this this afternoon. The curse of Genesis 3 was never put aside. Never put aside. It came to completion in the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are sorry and we grieve for our sin. We grieve for all of the ways that we rebel against you that we do not even recognize. The way we enthrone ourselves in our thinking and in our actions. We thank you, Father, that even though we deserve the condemnation of death, that you are faithful to your word and that you are merciful in providing us with a savior in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that through today and in the next session, we will come to understand our sin more clearly and to understand your grace in Christ with a greater clarity and thankfulness. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for bearing with that. That was very information heavy. Thank you.